Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kalen. Hi, church family. My name is Matt, and I'm the family pastor here at Calvary, and I get the opportunity to share God's word with you today as Pastor Nate and a group of people from our church are in Israel on a Holy Land tour. Um, continue to pray for them that their time would be blessed and uh, that God would really use their time there exploring the sights and sounds and smells of Israel and uh, really allowing God's Word, the Bible, to come alive to them. And so Pastor Nate will be back in the pulpit next week. Um, but for us today, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 6. Uh, before we get into our teaching, uh, I do want to pray for the devastating situation that's happened uh, between Russia and Ukraine this last week. And, and as I'm sure you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine, um, has displaced some 100,000 Ukrainians as uh, they fled uh, from war. And uh, this is a really tense and um, really kind of crazy time for us to be watching right now. So we want to pray and seek God um, for His hand, for His peace to, to reign, to rule down. And so would you join me in praying for this situation? God, we lift up God, the, the Russia-Ukrainian uh, situation to you right now, Lord. And God, we know that every life to you is valuable and important because, God, they're made in your image. And Lord, we see the brokenness and the sinfulness of man, Lord, played out before us. And we know that, God, there's going to be devastation that occurs as a result of these powers, Lord, coming in and trying to overrule um, things that have been long-standing. But God, I pray for your hand. I pray for your justice, Lord, to be brought. Lord, we pray for the Ukrainian people, God, that you would, um, God, protect them and watch over them, Lord. We pray for your sovereign hand, Lord, to be upon the people, Lord, upon the believers there in Ukraine. That, Lord, your church and the believers there in the East, God, would become a refuge and, Lord, would become a source of comfort and support to the people that, Lord, are fearing for their lives and, and fleeing for their lives, Lord. God, would you watch over them? Lord, ultimately, would you bring an end to this war? Would you bring peace, God? We pray and we seek you now for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 6, uh, verses 60 through 69 today, if you can turn in your Bibles there. And Pastor Nate has been teaching us uh, in a series through Nehemiah called God Renews His People. And last week, Pastor Nate talked about how God renews His people with the Word. And I want to continue in that theme today and look at a passage here in John chapter 6 that I believe shows us how we can receive the Word, even when it may be challenging to do so in our day and age. And so let's read our passage. We'll pray once more and then we'll jump into it. Starting in verse 60, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And so Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray once more. Lord, open up our hearts to receive your word today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the life that is found in them. And Lord, I pray that as a result of our time together, God, that we would have a renewed and refreshed appreciation for your word God, that we would see your word and the the trustworthiness of it, Lord, the beauty of it, and that, Lord, it would be not just a, a thing that we come to know, but, Lord, that we would come to know you, the author of the scriptures, even more. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. Pray your blessing on it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, In the Kaler household, we recently finished uh, uh, reading our boys a really incredible illustrated version of Pilgrim's Progress. Actually, it's called Little Pilgrim's Progress, and it's written for kids. And we just absolutely loved reading this story to them. And I had read the book before, Pilgrim's Progress, but man, it is such a powerful and inspiring allegory of the Christian life, written by John Bunyan. It follows a pilgrim named Christian who sets out on a journey to the celestial city. And along the way, Christian encounters many different characters and many different challenges that um, some characters are, are helping him along his path towards the celestial city while others are discouraging him and pulling him away and trying to take him off his path. It's just an incredible read, and I encourage every one of you to read it. And one of the sections of the book that stood out to me as I was reading it to our boys um, is when Christian and his friend Hopeful find themselves in Doubting Castle. It's a dungeon that's operated by a giant named Despair. After a few days where Christian and Hopeful are there, they find themselves doubting that they will ever get out and ever be freed. But Bunyan tells us how his characters, Christian and Hopeful, finally find the way of escape. He says in the book, this is Christian speaking, What a fool I've been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket I have a key called promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then, said Hopeful, that is good news, my good brother. Do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. You see, the key to Christian and Hopeful being freed from this dungeon, from this castle of doubt, was promise. And I think that's just a beautiful way for the author, John Bunyan, to show us the power and the significance of God's promise and his word in our daily lives. And for so many of us, we've discovered that this to be true of our lives, where God's promises, his word, are the key that free us from discouragement, despair, and doubt. We've seen his word lead us through valleys and give us courage through the trials of life. 
We can say like Peter in this passage that Jesus, your words are truly the words of life. But I wonder for others if you'd like to experience the Bible in that way, but you find it challenging. Maybe because of the critiques from our culture about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Maybe it causes you to doubt or downplay God's word in your life. Maybe it's just the the complexity of the scriptures. Maybe you're intimidated when you open the Bible and you try to understand and learn, but it's difficult and there's passages that are hard to understand. For some, maybe it's, you know, the invitation to experience God actually becomes an obstacle to know him because of the way that you're approaching the scriptures. In our text today, we're going to see a group of people who turned away from following Jesus because his words were hard to accept. But we're also going to see a group, the disciples who continue to follow Jesus, even as the crowds are leaving, because there was something about Jesus, something about his words that was so compelling that they knew there was nowhere else they would rather be. And it's this group that I pray for us that we would adopt the same mindset, the same understanding as we look to the scriptures as the words of life and as we look to Jesus to be the one who leads us there. So I believe our passage has something to teach us about how to approach the scriptures in such a way that we can say like Peter, these are the words of life. So I want to walk through this passage for us first and we'll unpack what's happening in this encounter. And then I want to kind of ask two questions that are going to guide our time through this passage. One, What should we do when we encounter difficulties from outside and inside the Bible? Two, how can we read the Bible, not just to know it, but to get to to know the author of it? Okay, those are the things we're going to look at. So let's jump in first off and see what's happening in this passage. So a little context for us here. Jesus has garnered a large following after performing multiple miracles, most notably feeding the 5,000 or what uh, commentators believe was probably closer to 10 to 12,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. The same crowd, they continued to pursue Jesus after they had been fed by him miraculously. But Jesus, knowing their motives for following him were not spiritual but material, teaches them about how he is the bread of life and whoever eats of him will never hunger or thirst again. He's the bread sent from heaven. He's the sustenance they need. But they question Jesus and and ask, how is it possible? How can we eat his flesh? And Jesus replies, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So you know this verse, I'm sure. This is a verse you probably memorized growing up when you were super young or saw in coffee mugs. I'm just kidding. This is not one of those that makes it on posters and uh, gets embroidered on really nice doilies. Um, Jesus is saying something that is kind of, at first read, kind of difficult to take in. Jesus, what do you mean unless we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood? You have no life. We have no life in you. Well, obviously, Jesus here is not advocating or inviting cannibalism. He's speaking in a metaphor. Jesus, when he talks about giving his flesh to us, he means by bread in this context that the bread was his flesh given for the life of the world. And it was his soon coming work on the cross where he would give his life as a sacrifice pleasing to God in our place that he was referring to. When he talks about his body, he's talking about how he was going to offer his body as a sacrifice for all who would take take part in him after his death and resurrection. 
The problem with the crowd, though, is they were thinking just in physical terms. They wanted the bread. They were just fed miraculously by Jesus. But more than just the bread, they wanted Jesus to be their king who would lead them against the Roman oppression that they were experiencing. So in this way, they were thinking and looking to Jesus as a means to their end, a physical, a material, and political end. But Jesus was looking and wanting them to see their spiritual need, that he was the food their soul needed. He was the bread, and if received into their entire being, they would be saved and satisfied by him. And it's with this backing that we pick up in our section today in verse 60. Let's read verse 60 again. It says, When many of his disciples heard it, referring to the teaching about Jesus being the bread of life, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, even though this says that it was his disciples who heard this saying. These disciples aren't necessarily understood as the same as his 12 disciples. Disciple in more of the broad sense as someone who was following Jesus up to this time. And what these disciples or followers of Jesus were saying is this is hard to really receive. Now, in the original language, it's not that this was difficult to understand. They didn't have so much a problem understanding it. Instead, they were saying this was hard to receive. And in in a sense, this teaching was offensive. It was hard for these people to accept. Jesus says something for them that they begin to grumble about. Verse 61 says that they're talking amongst themselves. Oh, I don't know about this. Ah, Jesus, you kind of had us, you know, with the bread and with the food and, and with the feasts and the miracles. But I don't know about this saying. This is, this is kind of tough for us to accept. And, uh, you know, kind of like in, in my home when, you know, after dinner we're sitting at the table and I say, all right, you know, boys, we're going to enjoy some, uh, some dessert But first, we're all going to clean the kitchen. Then there's this grumbling and kind of this talking amongst, I don't know about that, Dad. Um, We can kind of imagine that going on with these followers of Jesus. So not only, though, are they looking at this saying of Jesus and going, oh, man, this is hard to accept. But they're actually looking at it. And they're saying, secondly, look in verse 60, who can listen to it? When they say, who can listen to it? They're saying, who can stand and listen to such offensive teaching? And notice it wasn't just Jesus' teaching that that was just not for them. Like, oh, okay, well, that's great for you, Jesus, but, you know, it's not really for me. I'll take a pass. They take it a step further and they say, who can stand and listen to this teaching? In other words, how could someone accept this type of teaching? And I think it's the second sentiment that describes our cultural moment. There's this growing idea that what Christians believe and what the Bible teaches is harmful. And in this challenge against the Bible, how are we as Christians supposed to navigate through this? Because I think this challenge for many can be disorienting. It can be discouraging. Where for a long time, at least in our nation's history, the Bible has been regarded and respected in high esteem. But in the last few years, especially the last few decades, we see our culture moving further and further away from any kind of biblical moral grounding. So how as Christians are we to navigate through or respond to this kind of uh, critique from our culture? Well, I think one thing we need to remember, church, is that 
attacks like this from culture or views like this from culture are not new. (laughs) We need to see that we aren't experiencing anything unique as believers. You see, these people who saw Jesus with their eyes and experienced his miracles from his hands, they were offended by his teaching and were troubled by anyone that embraced his teaching. So what does Jesus do next? Look at verse 61. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And so he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus is essentially saying to them, if this is a hard thing for you to accept, then then you would certainly be offended because of where I came from. And my authority comes from God. Jesus' statement that the flesh counts for nothing, this again is meant to draw their thoughts away from the physical to the spiritual. These people are still thinking in terms of physical, material gain and what they can get from Jesus. But Jesus is continually pointing them back to their bigger need, the more pressing need, and that is the spiritual need that they had. But again, they weren't interested in that. They were a group of people that were fascinated with Jesus, but not consumed with him. So Jesus says, essentially, if if you had any idea of who I really am, this would be a whole different conversation. And then verse 66, one of the saddest verses in the Gospels, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is evidence that Jesus would probably not be invited to any church growth conferences today. (laughs) Because in just a few sentences, Jesus is able to really shrink the size of his following. But really, it wasn't the numbers that Jesus was interested in. He was looking for authentic people who could look at him And with the the motivation of trust and belief in him, accept him, even when it was hard. So it's at this point that the crowds turn away and no longer follow him. They found his words to be too hard to accept and offensive. So the question, what are we to do when we encounter a teaching from Jesus that's hard to accept? What are we to do when we encounter challenges from outside and inside the scriptures regarding the Bible being God's word and the authority that we are to place over our lives. What are our our options? Do we walk away like these quote-unquote disciples? Or do we trim and edit uh, the scriptures to fit our views in the same way someone like Thomas Jefferson did as he attempted to basically craft a Bible that he was comfortable with? It's been noted that he set out to create his own version of the Bible by literally taking a pair of scissors and cutting out the parts of the Gospels that offended him. They were mainly the sections of Scripture that spoke of Christ's miracles and the supernatural aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. But what was left was anything but good news. No, we we aren't to to walk away like the crowd. We aren't to trim and edit and, and try to construct a Gospel of our own liking. What should we do? Well, if you find yourself struggling with parts of the Bible and what it says, or maybe you know those that are having a difficult time really embracing the Bible and the Scripture as God's Word, I want to encourage you with two things today as we look at this. First, 
Jesus is clearly stating to the crowd that his authority is from God. And he's already shared that his life is the source of eternal life. In essence, Jesus is, is telling them if they were willing to hear that his words and his life are divine. That would mean that his words, the, the Bible is like no other book. <laughs> and we know this to be true. We believe that the Bible is unique, that it is authoritative, that it is inspired or God breathed. There's something about the scriptures that is different from any other book in human history. So let me say this. If the Bible is from God and not man, wouldn't it have to offend every culture at some point? That's the first thing we need to get. When we encounter challenges from our culture or challenges even from within the scriptures, maybe uh, that, that hit us in a way that cause us to think differently or a way you scratch our heads and just question if the Bible is from God and not man, wouldn't it have to offend every culture at some point? Pastor Nate shared this beautifully last week when he was talking about um, the, uh, the nation of Israel rediscovering the law and, and, and trying to understand and apply it in their lives. He made the point, if the book always agrees with you, perhaps you're reading it wrong. And I love that. So I think, first of all, when we encounter these challenges, we, we have to just step back and just go, wait, this book... This is a timeless book God has given to, to, to every culture and every society for every culture and every society so that they can know and experience life, life eternal. So wouldn't it just show that if it is from God and not man, it would have to offend every culture at some point. Number two, it seems that they got Jesus' words wrong, right? They didn't quite understand what he was saying because they brought their own expectations and assumptions of who he was into the situation. They wanted to see him take power and they wanted to join him as he could be king and overthrow the Roman government. They also wanted more miracles and they weren't so much interested in the, the spiritual stuff that Jesus was offering them. And so in that sense, they got Jesus wrong and they brought their own expectations and then were disappointed when those weren't met. I think sometimes we can approach the Bible this way. We can have our own expectations or we can come to it and think, man, this Bible is for me and it's about me. And, and maybe we refer to the Bible, you know, uh, with good, uh, good intentions as a manual for life. Whenever I hear that, I just can't help but think of those manuals that I get from Ikea that are just really, really, uh, you know, confusing at times and, and really troubling. And, you know, I, I cannot wait to get rid of that manual. <laughs> and I'll only break out that manual again if what happens? Well, if something goes wrong. And that's often how people treat a manual is they only go to it when something's broke or something needs fixing. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is alive. It's a living book, as we read in Hebrews 4.12. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides in the joint and marrow, and it's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And so the Bible is way more than a manual. We don't just go to it when we're broke or when there's something broken. So in this sense, I think not only do we need to recognize that the Bible is from God, not man, and therefore it, it probably will offend us at some point. But number two, we need to learn how not to approach the Bible. Dan Kimball, pastor actually in Santa Cruz, uh, in his book, How Not to Read the Bible, says this, the key to making sense of crazy and disturbing passages in the Bible is to understand how not to read the Bible. And he lays out uh, four things to do and how to approach the Bible in order to avoid approaching it wrongly. And I want to share these with you briefly. 
The first one is we need to approach the Bible and remember the Bible is a library, not a book. What do we mean by that? Well, remember, the Bible is not just one book. It's 66 different books. And it contains writings from history and poetry and prophecy and law. It's written in three different languages over a span of 1,500 years across multiple continents by a whole bunch of different people from different cultures, all with the same goal and intent to show that there is a God who loves his creation and has provided a way that they can be forgiven and know him intimately. There's beautiful symmetry to the Bible, but there's great diversity and complexity to it at the same time. When we read the Bible, we should even visualize ourselves almost entering a library and pulling from different genres and periods of time. And I believe this can really help us make sense of sections of Scripture that maybe we find challenging or hard to understand. For instance, we should approach a section of Scripture from the historical books that are largely narrative in form in a specific way, knowing that they're recounting history, that they're recording different things that happen in the nation of Israel largely. And to record something is not always to recommend something. So we may read something and go, oh my goodness, this is in the Bible. Is God okay with this happening? Not always, because to record does not mean that God is recommending it, even though it's in his word. Because that's narrative, and that's historical way of reading scripture. But when we approach a psalm, a psalm that is largely poetry and and a song that was written for the people of God in a consistent way that is uh, that in a way that is consistent with its genre, we will be able to be edified and encouraged by that instead of scratching our head going, wait, Psalm 91 4 says he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you'll find refuge. Wait a second, do we need to rethink our understanding of God? Is there some sort of God, you know, is he a, a large, you know, chicken some, you know, in heaven? You know, obviously, we don't do that. And what we're doing is we're applying good study habits and we're approaching the scriptures in a way that it should be. And so we need to understand this when reading historical narrative, when we, reading poetry, when reading prophecy, to understand in its literary style that it was written, approaching each book within its given genre can help us make sense of confusing or difficult sections of scripture. So that's the first one. Remember, the Bible is a library of books. Number two, I think another helpful tool to remember is never read a verse. Never read a verse. Okay, now that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that context is so important when reading the Bible. We should read a verse in its larger context. You know, we we may like pulling certain verses here and there, and there's encouraging verses, you know, and to be able to, you know, kind of say those or send those. And and I understand, I have my favorite verses too. But parachuting into verses, uh, as as a rule, is, is not very helpful to do in understanding the whole thrust of Scripture. The classic example is the person that would get the Bible and they, they're new to the Scriptures and they read um, one verse that says, Judas went and hung himself. And then they're confused by that. So they think, well, let me check somewhere else. And then they read a passage that says, go thou and do likewise. See, that, that's a way of reading one verse that is not helpful. And it's so important for us to understand and unpack the context that we read. A verse in Leviticus about the children of Israel not eating pork should be understood in the larger context of what the ceremonial laws given to Israel were for. In fact, it's helpful to know that there were three different laws given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. There were civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. The civil laws had to do with how the people should interact as a culture, as a society. They were the rules given to them in order that they may flourish. 
Many of these were specific to the time period they lived in and the context that they were in, being surrounded by pagan nations and nations that were worshiping foreign gods. And so many of these rules had that in mind. Ceremonial laws were given to the nation of Israel uh, to, to be set apart so that they would not be like the neighboring countries. As the Lord, as the people of God, they were to be pure and holy before the Lord. So God instituted a specific system that would help the people maintain their purity and holiness before him in order that they could have relationship with him. And this was done pre-Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And lastly, the moral laws were given to the nation of Israel. And these laws flowed from God's character and were given to show his plans and purposes for human flourishing. So we look and maybe we see a meme online or, you know, we hear of uh, on a secular TV show of someone uh, pulling a verse from the Old Testament and saying, well, we don't do that anymore. So therefore, the Bible is irrelevant. What do we do with that? So what applies? Well, it's good to know that ceremonial laws, Jesus came in his life, death and resurrection. He was the fulfillment of those laws. So no longer do those laws apply to believers today. Peter talked about this and and, and Paul talked about this, circumcision being an example of that. That no, this is no longer something that we all have to do in order to be saved and to receive God's salvation through Christ. But we can be free, Jew and Gentile. So ceremonial laws, those no longer apply to us. Civil laws are no longer binding because God's people are now from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's no longer a theocracy where you have one uh, people group ruled by God. Lastly, moral laws. These are the laws that remain in effect. And one way to tell which laws can can continue today is to look and go, which laws are reinforced in the New Testament, restated in the New Testament? And so this leads us to our next point. So first two points. Remember, the Bible is a library of books, not just one book. Number two, remember, uh, always to read a verse in its context. Number three, The Bible was written for us, but not to us. Now, this is important. Let me explain. Get this from Old Testament scholar John Walton, and he puts it uh, this way. The Bible is 100% inspired by God, and we can have confidence that every word in the original documents of the Bible is exactly what God wanted it to say. We believe in God's full inspiration and the total trustworthiness of the Bible. The books in the library of the Bible are are for all people at all times and place to read and gain wisdom from. Yet we understand that God's word was originally written not to us, but it has been written for us. Now we understand this because the Bible was not written in English, right? This wasn't written to a a, a people in America in 2022. But that doesn't change the fact that it was originally written for us and for everyone The Bible was written in three different languages, in fact, and it was written to specific people at a specific time. To get the most out of the Bible, we need to have this understanding. When we approach sections of Scripture that our culture might use and try to take out of context context to, to make the Bible seem irrelevant, the Bible is fully relevant today, and it's amazing that after 2,000 years um, since Jesus, we have God's Word today, and we can stand on it with trustworthiness and and know that it's the authority and the Bible still stands. Lastly, if the Bible's written for us but not to us, we can remember lastly that the Bible 
always points to Jesus, that all of the Bible points to Jesus. Remember the encounter that Jesus had with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. They were talking about his death and were having a hard time making sense of why he died. And Jesus said to those men, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, this is another way that that we can read the Bible correctly. And if we forget that the Bible, all of the Bible is pointing to Jesus, that there is an apex, that there is a, a climax, and that is with Jesus and his sacrifice and what he instituted on the cross through his death and resurrection, then we'll miss the grand story. We'll instead look at the Bible as small uh, segments and, 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 and uh, separate um, little portions of moral lessons that are just kind of meant to teach us and to give us wisdom. Now, does the Bible give wisdom? Absolutely. Are there moral lessons in it? Absolutely. But we need to see as Jesus saw, he saw that the Bible was all about him. He saw that it was pointing to him and that it was uh, all leading to him. He believed the Old Testament was preparing people for and pointing people towards his own life and ministry. He understood that the Old Testament sacrificial system was trying to say three things to a very stubborn people, that God is holy, that sin is serious, and that people need a Savior. And so, friends, with these four things, I hope that this will help us not read the Bible incorrectly, but approach it in a way that we can understand its depth and its complexity and yet its beauty. So what were the two questions we started with? Well, hopefully we've uh, tackled one of them. What to do when we encounter difficulties from outside and inside the Bible? And that brings us to our second question. How can we read the Bible, not just to know it, but to get to know the author of it? Back to our text in John 6. So after this, many of the disciples walked away. And Jesus said to the 12 in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave as well? And Peter, who some, someone has said, more operated like ready, fire, aim, <laughs> has an inspired moment here. This is a good moment for Peter. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And, uh, you know, God has used this verse and this passage time and time again in my life to confirm and establish me in my faith in Christ. I've shared with you at times that there was seasons in my life, especially in college, where I was challenged by critiques of Christianity or the Bible um, by atheist professors, critiques and challenges to my Christian faith. And there was a period of months where um, I just, I felt a, a little bit like I was in that dungeon, that I was there in Doubting Castle, And there was despair that was kind of over my heart and mind as I was really wanting to see the Lord and sense the Lord and hear from the Lord, but I felt like he was silent. And I believe looking back at that time that it was a time that God was um, giving me the opportunity to love him, not just with my heart, but with my mind. And so I searched and I researched and I looked into other religions and I had to kind of see, you know, what, what were the claims of these other belief systems I didn't want to just believe Christianity because I was raised in a Christian home. If it wasn't true, then then why would I devote my life to following Christ? It seemed easier to just kind of do whatever I wanted to do if Christianity wasn't actually true. 
After spending time seeing what other beliefs were out there, um, there was just something about Jesus I couldn't shake. There was just something more compelling and attractive and wise and, and, and loving with this figure than, than in all of human history. I, I was just continually drawn back to him as I looked at the Gospels and I compared it uh, to other beliefs. And I, I keep coming back to the thought that these other systems didn't satisfy my questions and my longings like Jesus And it was the Jesus of the Bible that captivated my heart and mind and gave me a hunger to know him more. And and can I just say, for those of you that are experiencing that, that dungeon or that castle right now in your Christian life, let me just say that I know what that's like. I know how hard seasons of doubt can be. But I also want to encourage you that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is. To doubt can be a very normal part of seeking and growing and exploring and getting deeper in your Christian life. I believe there's a level of doubt that can be healthy and it can lead to that stronger understanding of trusting the Bible and the author of it. So in your doubts, ask yourself the question that Peter says here, and that I I think not enough people who are in a process of doubting and questioning are asking, and that's this, to whom shall I go? To whom shall I go? You see, because to walk away from Jesus, whether it's because of a, a teaching that's offensive or an aspect of the gospel you find hard to accept, to walk away is not to remain neutral because we will worship something and someone. Who else and what else can make sense of the world that we live in like Jesus? I'm not saying you won't have questions. I'm I'm not even saying it won't be difficult. And I believe that even for Peter and the other disciples here, we find out later that there were things after the resurrection that they just started to get and understand. But there were things that that were still unclear to them. But, But there was something about following Jesus and the alternative of not following Jesus that made Jesus most compelling. I like how Dallas Willard talks about the idea of not following Jesus. You know, we talk a lot about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. And yes, there's a, there's a high cost. But Dallas Willard, uh, author and, and teacher, he says there's a cost of non-discipleship. And he unpacks it this way. He says non-discipleship, the idea of not following Jesus, costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, a faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. I think that is so powerful. Friends, and I would just encourage you, if you find yourself just on on the edge and wondering, man, Jesus, are you worth it? Should I keep going? Consider the cost of non-discipleship. Remember hearing a story about a French-born uh, um, man named Emile Callier. Callier was an agnostic during his college days prior to World War I. After graduation, he served in the army. Callier not only witnessed a buddy killed while speaking to him in the war, but also spent months recovering in the hospital from severe battle wounds. During his recovery, he read voraciously, longing for a book that would understand him. Since Callier didn't know of any such book, he decided to compile an anthology of quotations that spoke to his condition at various points in time. 
When he finally had completed his compilation and sat down to read it, he found that he was greatly disappointed because the undertaking, undertaking had been of his own making. That same day that he came to this conclusion, as he returned home, objected, uh, dejected and dispirited, he found that his wife had come into possession of a Bible. While strolling their child in a baby carriage, she had encountered a minister who handed her a Bible that was written in French. Though Callier had been adamant that religion would be taboo in their home, he eagerly grabbed it from her. And he recalls, I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read, now aloud with indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned on me. This was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I had attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels. And lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive in me. What a powerful experience that he recounts. And I have to guess that for for many of you that are listening to this teaching, you've had a similar experience. That as you encounter the Bible, as you've grown to read and understand it, there's something about it. And it's not just the words, but it's the one behind the words. It's the author of it. That you can look at at Peter's response here, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And you can say, yes, there is something different about this book. As Callier says, it understands me. Or as I've heard someone else speak to you, I was reading this book, but then I found that the book was actually reading me. And what other depth of literature, what other, what other book, whatever sacred writing can do what the Bible does? This is how we approach the Bible We approach it not just to know it. We approach it in order that we may get to know the author of it. And what that means is we come humbly before it. And we say, Lord, allow your word to search my heart. Just as the psalmist would say, to search me and know me. Because God's word becomes that mirror for our lives. Where there are things we don't even know about ourselves until we discover them in his word. And look at what Peter says in verse 69 as we close our time today. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We remember, remember we said that the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And I'd like to continue that thought to say, although the Bible was written for us, it is not primarily about us. So the Bible was not written to us, but was written for us. And although the Bible was not written for us, although the Bible was written for us, it is not primarily about us. The Bible is about God. It's about him and his great plan to redeem mankind from sin, to bring his kingdom, to establish his rule and reign, to make things right. And the more we discover who he is, the more we learn who we are. We grow in our understanding of our identity as his children. And this is how we should approach the Bible. Not to go, who am I? What does this say about me? But to look and go, what does this say about God? Who is he? What has he done? And in light of those things, 
to ask, now what does that mean for me? How then shall I live in light of this? These are ways that we can approach the scripture so that the Bible doesn't just become a manual for when things break. That the Bible doesn't just become something that we recite and we think and we memorize, but has no effect and no change on our lives. The more you read the Bible, the more you discover the Bible's actually reading you. Hebrews 4.12, as I said earlier, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. How can we read the Bible, not just to know it, but to know the author of it? Remember, it's a living book. That in this book is life and an invitation to know God and be known by him. That means you shouldn't be surprised when the Bible starts messing with you. (laughs) When it starts rearranging your desires and giving you new affections. As you feed your soul with the bread of God's word, allow it to be your sustenance. Don't be surprised that the less you read the Bible, the less you want to read the Bible. But the more you read the Bible, the more you will want to read the Bible. Don't be surprised when you're discouraged and you go to the scriptures and you read and you're comforted in your heart and in your soul. And there's something even about your emotional state and your mental state that God does to encourage and lift you up. He's the lifter of our head. As you feed your soul with the bread of God's word, allow it to feed you and be your sustenance. So ask him for a deeper hunger for his word. If you feel as though, man, your relationship to the Bible has changed and and, and you need a refresh, you need a restart, do that and ask him for that. But more than that, ask him for a deeper hunger to know him, the author and finisher of your faith, the bread of life. I want to close with this quote by Ray Stedman, pastor teacher who has gone on to be with the Lord and author. And he comments on Peter's response to Jesus's question, will you also leave? And I just love this. First, Peter says, in effect, Lord, we have been thinking about it. We have investigated the alternatives. You're not easy to live with. You embarrass us. You frighten us. We don't understand you at times. We see and hear you do things that simply blow our minds. You offend people who we think are important. We've looked at alternatives, but I want to tell you this, Lord. We have never found anyone who can do what you can do. To whom shall we go? You have two things that hold us, two things we cannot deny. And the first is your words. What you say to us has met our deepest need, has delivered us from our sins and freed us from our fears. Your words, Lord, are the most remarkable words we've ever heard. They explain us and they explain life to us. They satisfy us. And nobody speaks like you do. Nobody understands life like you do. And that holds us. Secondly, Lord, we have seen your character. We have believed and have come to know. That implies a process which has perhaps gone on over the course of months and years. Peter is saying, we have watched you and we have come to see that there is nothing wrong in you. You are the Holy One of God. You are the sinless one. You fit the prophecies. You fulfill the predictions. You've drawn us and compelled us. You are the incomparable Christ. And thus, there is no place else to go. Friends, my heart for us is that we, as we allow God's word to renew us as a people, that, man, we would take it into our lives and re- allow it to renew us individually. That God's word would not be the obstacle to further deepening our relationship with him, but that it would be the invitation that we take him up on. In all its complexity, with all of our questions, maybe with challenges that we face, that we would look to God's word and say, God, would you continue to reveal yourself to me 
through your scriptures and that we would continue to find that it is our source of life in these days. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your word. Thank you for Jesus, who is the word become flesh, who dwelt among us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us who you are, the Father, the character, the love, the compassion, the forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that as we read the scriptures, we discover time and time again, Lord, how good you are, how much we need you, and Lord, the life that you've invited us to live. So Jesus, continue to develop a hunger in the hearts of the people at Calvary and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.